Who is Mutu Olani Adio Sumono? That's, that's, that's my full name. Well, I think let's, let me just start by giving you my, my family background, my circumstances of birth and everything. Um, I was born on the 27th of May, 1955. Um, that makes it 65 years ago that I was born. I was, I was born into a, a Muslim family. My father, my mother uh, were both staunch Muslim. Um, my father uh, worked with the Nigerian railways while my mother was a petty trader. So being a railway child, as we used to call ourselves in those days, it means that um, I traveled around a lot because my father was always on one transfer or the other. So my father was always moving from one city to another as, as a railway worker. Um, I was born in Ibadan and um, I spent my first six years in this world in Ibadan. I started my primary school in Ibadan at uh, Ebenezer Primary School. Just amazing that I've been to Ibadan many times thereafter, and I just could not even locate the school. It's no longer in existence, which is really a shame. It was a it was a good primary school, even from my recollection. But from from Ibadan, we had to move to Ofa, from Ofa to Kafanchan, from Kafanchan to Jaws, from Jaws to. Um, Makodi from Makodi to Maduguri. So I really moved around the lot with, with my with my parents. Um, and also I had to attend a number of a number of schools at different times. So at some stage my father was getting really worried uh, that I might be it might affect my education. Because sometimes it's in the third time that transfer will come. So in 1966, I decided, it, it, he decided to move me to Abeokuta and put me in a boarding house. So I then finished off my, uh, my primary school education in Abeokuta from where I moved. While I was growing up, something that is very important to me was the closeness I had with my father and with my mother. And it's a, it's a very, it's, it's a very strange closeness. But I was close to both of them, but I was also conscious that my father was very protective of me, even more than my mom. And I didn't mention that I'm number one out of a out of ten children. So my father had two wives, of course, in those days, which was even uh, 
which is a bit modest. But my from my parents, there are 10 of us, and I happen to be number one. So I was so close to my parents um, that even when I was in secondary school, my father used to share his face with me. So I knew how much my father was earning. We would plan his expenditure together. And all of those things were just happening. I didn't think much of it. But frankly, when I look at how I lived my life as an adult, I felt a lot of those things that I had imbibed just being close to my father also started to play out in the way I live my life. Decided to play out in the way I manage my finances. Decided to play out in the way I do my things in a very open manner. So my at a stage, my father, when I was in the university, my father was happy to actually keep money in my own account for us to decide how we would spend it. So we were making decisions together. And that for me was a very good thing that I learned from my father. So in a nutshell, I'm 65 years today, first born out of 10, railway father, uh, petty trader, mother, and I was also very helpful with my mom. In those days when we were in the north, I would help her to hawk plantain, hawk um, uh, sponge. You know, those things were very, yeah, they were the thing that petty traders deal with in those days. You carry it in a tray, you put it on your head, and you are going from one hut to another, you know, gasoso, gayaba, you know, all those things. And you are always very happy when people buy and you can go home and, and show money to your to your mother, etc. etc. So all those things also have an impact on one's life. So that's in a nutshell is me. Yeah, I don't know if you really want to do anything more than that. Uh, quite interesting, quite quite interesting um, um, background. And, um, and rich family connects. Uh, thank you very much for giving us a glimpse into uh, that part of, um, of, of you that um, I'm sure not many of us um, knew about. Uh, I'd like to ask you um, another question. Uh, you, you, you've had uh, a most uh, interesting career in Shell, spanning over 35 years. You rose from being uh, a support staff, an IT analyst, i.e. the folks that we call upon to change uh, uh, damaged laptops and phones to becoming a director in the Shell Petroleum Development Company of Nigeria and later you became chairman uh, of Shell companies in Nigeria. Uh, can you please tell me uh, about uh, your biggest success story as an employee? I think it's frankly the biggest success story as an employee, I really do believe was when I was, um, when I returned from cross-posting in, 
think 1994. I returned from cross posting in 1994 from Aberdeen. And I was then given the position of head of IT services. Um, before then, all my career has been with respect to business analysis, writing programs, and managing uh, projects. But I was then, when I came back, I went to UK as an information planner. When I came back, I was then given this job of head of IT services, which for which I had no background for at all. Because as IT services, you are responsible for managing computer operations. I was responsible for managing our telecoms uh, network. And that was the first time actually that we were managing telecoms and computer together in Shell. So I, I, I had no idea uh, about telecommunication services. As head of IT services, I was also responsible for, for user support. Uh, PC support, that time PC was just coming in, into use in a big way. I was responsible for managing the user interface with respect to that. So it was really a conglomerate of different units which I did not have the background for. As head of IT services, I was also responsible for managing telephone operators. You know, in those days, it was very common the phone operator who would then connect you uh, to whoever you wanted in the organization. And this, each of these areas was so problematic extremely problematic and I think when I when I look back that was really the defining moment for my career because I must have done that job so well and um, in a way that I knew I was putting a lot of effort into the job but what was really much more gratifying for me was the feedback that I kept getting Oh, Michi is so responsive. If you call him about this problem, he, he was going to make sure it was solved. And when I was in Aberdeen, the greatest frustration I always had was about wanting to call anybody in Shell, Nigeria. To get to the switchboard, it will keep ringing, 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 and nobody will pick. So when I got into this job, that was really where I headed for that. This must change. This must change. And I didn't just go into trying to solve it with technology, which was one of the things I tried to do to make sure you can, you can bypass the operators and, and dial the extension direct. But I also went into solving the human angle of it. I remember one day I called all the telephone operators into my office, and to my surprise, only two or three of them were actually shell staff. 
all the others were, were contract staff. And I was asking them general questions and it became clear to me that they were not happy doing that job. Very clear to me that they were not happy doing that, especially the shell staff who were there. So I started to attack that human angle of that service. And I told myself, I must outsource this service. I don't think this is a service that a share staff will ever be proud to be doing. And as long as you put people there and they are not happy, you will never get a good service from it. So when I went for outsourcing, of course, union came after me immediately. Oh, you want to uh, take jobs away from our staff? But I was undaunted, honestly. And I, I did it. The improvement became so visible, so clear. It, it's amazing that when you look at all the very technical pieces of my job as head of IT services, it is this one that looks so mundane that even every manager, the MD, everybody was talking about. Because that is where the rubber hit the road as far as they are concerned. So every time I'm talking about my success story in Shell, I never forget that this was the origin. This was, in my opinion, the point where I was discovered that, oh, this guy, even though this is a programmer, he's not a telecoms guy, and he's, he's able to do this. The, the, the second element of that success story, and I will not mention name here, um, but that was the first time telecommunications was being merged with computing. So the guy who was head of telecommunications all these years was of course not happy that his department was being merged and more so that he will not have to report to this young man. And I wasn't happy with his performance. I was so respectful to him. I was always encouraging him. When I asked him to do some work, I will be the one that will do almost 80% of it. And at some point, I then realized that my bosses knew that this guy was going to be my real problem. It was much later I realized they were just watching for how I would deal with it. Until one day I went up to them that, look, I don't, I think this guy is no longer able to give the best for this organization and I would like to release him. He said, go ahead and do it. And I did it and look for a younger person, put in the position, and that took a lot of weight off me. I had much more capable young man doing what this other man couldn't do. And I felt so fulfilled in that job, frankly. But part of my fulfillment also came for the fact that even though I relieved this elderly man of his job, we were still very good friends because I did it so respectfully. I had a very open conversation with him. 
I made him to realize that if you want to do another job, we can look for it for him. But that, frankly speaking, I would not advise him. So I, I felt that was a very important uh, success story for me as, as, a, as a young man at that time. Indeed, 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 and and and, and I like the, the the human angle which you uh, which you put forward uh, with the first example, and and that that makes me to recall you know a conversation we had you know um, over dinner in your in your Portacot home eleven years ago, uh, and then I wanted to know um, uh, we had a coaching a coaching discussion, and I wanted to know how you a mathematics graduate with no engineering or geology degree, were able to thrive as the production director. Because, you know, you recently led the business uh, to a great milestone of 1 million barrels of oil per day. Uh, and that was just one IOC. Um, uh, to put this in, in, in context, right now, Nigeria's production, uh, as, at, as at April, three months ago, was 1.8 um, million barrels of oil per day. And I still remember very clearly your response. You looked straight at me in the eye. And, and you told me that, Aki, uh, you don't need to be an engineer to be um, an effective production, direct, production director. All you need is to be able to identify, uh, motivate the best petroleum engineer uh, to get oil from the from the subsurface. Uh, can you just share with us uh, your approach uh, to leadership? Well, frankly, I think leadership for me is about really making sure that you can put people and processes together to deliver results. There is nothing more than leadership than that. And therefore, in any position I find myself, the first thing I try to do is that, what am I supposed to do in this position? What am I supposed to be delivering in this position? What are the critical things that I need to do? So, even where that is not very clear to me, because sometimes it's not very clear, and I, I don't beat about the bush. I don't try to, to, to invent it. I always believe that there are enough people around me who can help to articulate that. So if, I'm, if I come into a new position today, I'm just going in there with the mind that there are enough talents around me to help me uh, navigate my way and I always start by bringing people together getting people to tell me what they believe is our mission in this business and frankly it requires a lot of painstaking effort because people will tell you a thousand and one things that are not even relevant. So, but you still have to have the patience to listen and decipher. So, leadership for me starts from, first of all, listening. 
if you don't listen, you cannot lead. And when you listen, because there will be all manner of things that will, will not be pointing in the direction that you believe you should go. But you have to be careful that you are patient. You are patient, you respect people even when they are saying rubbish. Because even in the rubbish they are saying, you could see some glimmer there. So it's about listening for me and it's about respect for people. I never, I never really write off somebody too quickly. I listen to you and I try to see if I can make some sense out of what you are saying. That is my number two approach to leadership. The third thing again, which is also about people, is making people to feel that they count. Make people feel that they count. When I got into production, the, the production plan was always been developed by planners in the office. These are the, the graduates of this world. They can do uh, PowerPoint for you. They can do Excel spreadsheet for you. But this plan is going to be delivered in the field. When I got into production, the first thing I said is that the production plan must originate from the field. So some of these uh, uh, junior staff, as we call them that time, were so excited to be coming to the office to present their plan to a manager. It has never happened before. And that just motivated them to high heaven. Why? Because they feel recognized. They feel recognized. For the first time they will come, their voice was being heard. They had a voice. So in whatever position of leadership you are, you must make sure that your followers had the voice. I give that voice to all my staff. Again, it's still about people. I make sure that whatever it is that they need to do their job, I get it for them. They needed some tools at some stage in the field and they had made a requisition for it from materials department. And after two weeks, they told me materials department had not delivered it and that this is what we suffer. Every time we make requisition, they don't give it to us. I said, what is the tool that you need? They told me it's a copper hammer. I said, but is it available elsewhere? They say it's available in John Holt in town. So I walked straight to the materials manager's office uh, and I said, Don, my people need a copper hammer. They've raised this requisition for it for two weeks. If they don't get it by tomorrow, I will go out and get it for them from John Holt and 
and the company will have to pay me back. Before 12 noon the following day, the copper, the copper hammers arrived. So you, there's, and there's nothing more I did other than to help them get the tools that they need to do their job. So it's always around people for me. We were doing training plans one year. Yeah, everybody was going on training. And then I said, um, so what about um, our technicians? And I was told that, oh, they, they, they cannot go on overseas trip. I said, why? Mm, so that's the policy. I said, whose policy? Then I sent a note to Shell in the Hague to say, can you please tell me whether junior staff in production, whether there are no courses on production that junior staff can attend? And I think, oh, in PDO, we, 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 we structure this course for them, we develop this course for them in this country. I said, what about Nigeria? your people don't send anybody thank you that year i made sure our junior staff went on overseas how how so if i tell those staff to jump they fly so it's really all about people frankly speaking there's nothing more nothing more magical i had no clue what they do technically but I believe in them, I listen to them, I help them when they have when they when they have a bottleneck. That's all. That's your job as a leader. And that's my own perspective about leadership. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Very, very insightful. Uh, so let's move to the to the macro level now. Um, you presently sit on at least 10, 10 boards and chair you know, over half of that, uh, over half of that number. Uh, it's a challenging time for businesses the world over. Uh, headwinds are here. Uh, 2020 started with geographical uncertainties in the Middle East. Uh, the year progressed with trade war between major superpowers, which worsened global business and um, consumer confidence. Uh, and of course, it's generally slowed down industrial production. Uh, then came COVID-19. Uh, a recent report I came across states that 94% uh, of Fortune 1000 uh, across the globe have been impacted and are currently experiencing significant disruption. I published uh, two articles on that uh, in LinkedIn, uh, but I would like to get your perspective. Uh, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs, for business owners, uh, for, for decision makers, uh, not just to survive this meltdown, but to come out stronger? Well, I think the first thing is what you said, you need to survive. Yeah, because if you don't survive, you can't even be stronger. So you, you need to have that cutting edge ability to do what you need to do for you to survive. This is not the time for sentiment. This is not the time for you uh, to be undecided. 
about what you want to do. So this is the time for you to overreact. This is the time to do all those things that will just allow your business to remain as a going concern. Unfortunately, I've seen some business owners, some entrepreneurs who are not able to make the call that is required. You see them saying, yeah, but rather than reduce staff by this, uh, maybe I should do it. They are looking at options, middle of the road options. But frankly, this is not the time for middle of the road option, except if you have a strong balance sheet that can allow you to be a middle of the road option. You can, and again, I think what people miss is that they don't believe that you can be, you can be tough and also show love. So some entrepreneurs are always the shy away from oh, laying off staff, paying staff half salary. It's about conversation. It's about openness. It's about opening the fact to them. Let the fact space be clear to everybody. So I think it is very important because when you are going through this survival uh, process, you also need to carry your employees along. And you also need to make sure that in case your situation gets better, if the employees that you fire, they will be willing to leave their new employ employment back to you because of the way you have dealt with them when they are exiting your company. So people shouldn't mix those two things up. It is tough love, but be open. Let people see the fact space. But in situations like this, you can develop the fact space with some of the employees and let your employees also become your mouthpiece as an entrepreneur so that they can understand it, they can defend the action with their families, etc. etc. So, but once when you are planning survival, you must also bear in mind that if you plan only to survive you will probably not make it. So you must plan survival at the same time, same, how will I take advantage that this crisis is presenting to me? I, I never lose the opportunity to take advantage of any crisis. I run I managed two schools in Port Harcourt. And before COVID, last year, I said, look, I really want to change the face of education. And there's no point me now talking about, now I have the opportunity to do it myself. I then introduced Google Classroom as a platform for learning in my school. 
And I didn't just introduce Google Classroom as a platform. I also then made sure that every child in the school was given a Chromebook. But when I was doing this, some of my teachers were saying, oh, but parents, we need to carry them along so that uh, they will pay. I said, I'm not carrying them along. This is my standard. This is the standard for the future, but I want to start now. But coming back to uh, taking opportunities, and then COVID-19 started. Online learning had to start. Many of the schools that started online learning have stopped it because they were not ready for it. But the online learning that we do in Bloomberg School is one of the best because we had, I actually got a consultant from the UK to launch the, the Chromebook application, the Google Classroom in my school. It was always coming every six weeks. Because once we started, parents were like, oh, when can I have my, when can my child have uh, his own Chromebook? I said, no, there's a process. We need to train them. We need to train teachers. We need to do this. So we did it so methodically. But back to my point about season opportunities, when we now had to be, because at that time we were doing it in the classroom environment. But with COVID-19, we then had to deploy it virtually. Then I said, hang on a minute. So if I can do this, there are some subjects that I think are problematic for some of my Nigerian teachers. And I said, for example, even though we, we teach French in the school, but I'm not proud that our students cannot speak French. I said, so, but given this kind of online thing, can't I get a French teacher in France to be taking the French lessons in my schools all the way from France? My eyes open that this is a possibility. And I then put my consultant on it. So let us see how we can do this. I don't need to bring in an expatriate into Nigeria at a colossal cost. Let us use this online mechanism to start to do that. And as at yesterday, we are already saying, okay, we have two schools. Every subject has their own teacher in both schools. And I said, why? And even if we do, we already know that if you take a subject like physics, for instance, a teacher might be so good in mass and in light, but awful in magnetism. So why can't the teacher who is good in light do it for both schools? And the one that is good in magnetism do it for both schools because of the online facilities that we have in the school. So those are the sort of things I believe that entrepreneurs need to start to ask themselves, what am I learning in this crisis? And how can I really turn this learning into a long-term advantage for me? So for me, those, those are the two key things. 
make sure you can survive a very brutal about survival, but also it will be a waste if you miss the opportunities that this crisis depends for you. Excellent. Very good. Very good um, um, and very practical example you know you just gave. And 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 you know talking about the school, the Blue Brick School in Port Harcourt. Uh, I remember a conversation we had, you know, um, you know, on how you started the school and how you made a decision, you know, to 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 pull your weight behind the school. And and that, and that takes me to the next um, to the next question. Uh, um, um, you know, whether we like it or not, whether we are conscious of it or not, uh, one success or failure uh, in life is a summation of choices made and decisions taken. When we make a choice, we automatically forgo the consequences or benefits of the alternatives, and that's what economists call uh, opportunity cost. Uh, because man is finite, uh, we choose to either invest or not to invest, we choose to either attend or not to attend, we, either, we choose to either push forward or pull back, say yes or say no. Uh, uh, someone once said that successful people make the right decisions early and manage those decisions you know on a daily basis uh, of course all you need is a few bad decisions a few bad decisions and you know one's life is wrecked uh, uh, could you tell us uh, of a time when you had to make a difficult decision which you knew its outcome has the potential to either make or mar you Yeah, I think the thing is sometimes you make these things somewhat unconsciously or somewhat subconsciously because you are processing these things in your subconscious and you are, you are making choices in your head, you are making decisions in your head and it's something that you do without, sometimes you do it consciously, sometimes you just do it subconsciously, as I said. But for me, so there have been so many of those moments in my life. But if I, I always like to go back to fundamental. I think one decision which I believe Could have gone either way for me. Was my decision to do math in the university? Because being the first child of a railway father, he had always pumped it into my head that you have to be an engineer or a doctor, or a lawyer. And I never queried it while I was growing up. But when I was getting into secondary school, it dawned on me that I don't think I would, I would be a good lawyer. But I was beginning to get fascinated to medicine. And my sciences were good, 
my biology was good, but I never draw well. So in my head, I felt if I cannot draw well, I don't think I will, I will be good at medicine. Nobody was there to coach me and to correct me that you don't need to know how to draw uh, to be able to be a good doctor. So the choice I had left in my head was engineering. And since I was good in math, I was good in physics, I was good in chemistry, I felt that was really the choice. But when I finished secondary school, I applied to Unilag to do prelim. And that is a very, in fact, that is probably a very important lesson of life, which I really must share. When I did the entrance to prelim into Unilag, it must be 1971 or 72, 72. When the result came out, I was not successful. So you must just imagine how devastated I would be. And in those days, you leave secondary school in December, higher institutions started in September. So you are home for nine months. Even though I felt I will redo the Unilag again the following year, but will I stay at home for nine months? So I then decided to go to the Polytechnic to go and do engineering. But my father was very much eager that I went into the university. So he came down to University of Lagos then and somebody, I've forgotten the name, but a very senior high-ranking officer said, oh, if, if, you, if you have come earlier, I will have been able to, to fix this thing for this guy. The uh, uh, result is good. He made a great one. So my father came home to tell me. Then I found out that that officer was willing to help me but you have to change my grade one result to something super. Then I told my father, no, I wasn't going to do it. But the relevance of that story was that when I eventually got into Unilag, the bubble burst. And all the people that this guy falsified their results to come into Unilag were then identified and they were rusticated. But I just felt that, what is wrong with my grade one result? I didn't make aggregate six, but maybe I made aggregate 10 or 12. I just felt so, so sad that this man is trying to even rubbish my grade, which by all standards was excellent. So I told my father I would that I would, I would do this exam again. Anyway, when I did the exam later, I applied for prelim engineering they then offered me prelim science. You can see how disappointed my father was. This is a man who wanted me to be an engineer. By the way, I went to the Polytechnic for one year to do mechanical engineering. But while in the Polytechnic, all my lecturers kept telling me, Mutu, 
we are warning you, we are warning you, you will regret it, you should go to the university. This is not the place for you. Technical education is good, but you think you can get something better. So they encouraged me, so I sat for Unilag exam again, and then I passed by the say I can come and do science. And in those days, young people ask you, what are you doing? You say you are doing science. It doesn't seem like you are really in the university. But whether you were, whether they took you for prelim engineering or prelim science, all of us will still do the same thing in that first year. Mass, mass physics. So which I did, and I did very well. Even those who were originally accepted for engineering, many of them never marked my result. So when I was then going in into my first year for BSc, it was a big hassle because uh, Professor Awojobi was head of engineering there. I did not register for engineering. But the man was looking for me to say, who is this guy? Why is he not in my class? And I went to meet with him. And I told him, I said, excuse me, sir, I've had one year in the polytechnic. And it was clear to me that engineering was not my stuff. Every other subject in the polytechnic, I would clear with a star. But once I got into the workshop, either to make a cup or to make a screw, I would be the last to finish. My product would be the worst. Engineering drawing, disaster. But every other thing, mechanical engineering science, electrical engineering science, I was flying. So I told Professor Wojobi that, look, my engineering drawing is a mess, was a mess when I was in polytechnic. My workshop practices were no good. I don't think I would be a good engineer. So I don't worry about that. Get your degree first, and then you can decide whether you want to be a good engineer or not. And I told my father this. My father was first. So they are ready to even accept you into engineering. So what is it? But I thought so hard about him. And I felt, I know myself. If I go into these sciences, I know I was going to just do math. If I close my eyes, I will make a first class. If I go into this engineering, I will walk around the clock and I will probably struggle to make a two-two or a two-one. Why do I want to do that? So that for me was a very important decision as a young man. And with all the pressure on me from society, society wanted you to say you are reading engineering. Your father wanted you to say you are reading engineering. The head of engineering wanted you in the engineering department. And you just said, no. And I do believe that it is because I made a first class that Shell found me attractive for even employment. So I felt that for me was a really make of my decision, which as a young man, I took a chance at, frankly speaking. Because I wasn't, my father was always asking me, so if you didn't do this math, what will you do? I said, I want to be a university lecturer. In his head, 
I'm sending you to the university and all you want to do is to be a teacher. So I felt for me, that was a real make or my decision for me. But my, my life would probably have gone differently. Indeed, I'd like to know what was going on in your head, what was going on in your mind. I mean, you had obviously had friends and colleagues that were going into uh, such um, um, courses like engineering, like medicine. So what was it? How, how are you I, processing that information? Yeah, I, I really think, first of all, that experience in the polytechnic was invaluable because in that experience made me to know where my strength lies and where my strength is not. But secondly, that I was humble enough to know that, hey, Mutio, you will not be a successful engineer. I was, I think I was truthful to myself. And I think the other element of it, of course, is that I've been a very successful student all my life in all primary school, all that, all that. So I was also conscious that if I now go into a course that I will not enjoy, the chances are that I will not do well. So I think it's all about not wanting to let down myself. It's also about knowing myself. And third leg is about believing that, look, this thing I want to pursue, if I do it, I will do it well. And it will lead me to what, because I wanted to be a university lecturer. I think I saw a university lecturer as my alternative to being an engineer. And indeed, indeed, and, and that was my, my next question that, you know, um, so what was success for you? So um, initially it appeared that success was, you know, for the four-year course, making a first class. So I was, I was going to just ask, but you've mentioned that, maybe you need to maybe talk, talk about it. What was, you know, the longer-term success? Where, where did you see yourself? No, in, in my head at that time, universities were great at that time. You would see, you would see the children of lecturers, they will be speaking phonetics, English, as if they are born abroad. And on the same vein, you will hear them speak Yoruba, their native language, so well also, unlike now that our children, they, they don't even can speak our own language. So because I used to occasionally see these university lecturers with their children in buses, or in, in bookshop. So I felt this is just, and you see where lecturers were living at that time, it was a good life. And I, I used to have people like um, Daddy Gio Adeboye, uh, the other man now, and, uh, another Christian leader. They were my lecturers in the university. I, Pastor I Kumuyi. admired them. Uh, yes, Pastor Kumuyi. I admired them, I admired their simplicity. They were your lecturers. They were my lecturers. Dr. Deboe will come into the into the class without any book. He will start, he will finish, you know, no notebook, no nothing, all from his head. I admired and I felt this is really what I want to be. To be impacting knowledge, to be doing this, to be doing that. 
and to become a PhD holder as quickly as possible. So when I was leaving university and everybody was applying for a job, I wasn't. I was just looking for scholarship to go and do PhD because that was really what success was for me. So um, as a former you know, Shell executive uh, with membership in you know, over 10 companies and being the chairman of most of those companies which you know you sit on on, on their boards. Uh, uh, when you're considering partnering with a person or with a business, including sitting on on boards and advising them, uh, what factors do you consider before making a decision to be a member of of, of board of directors or to even chair uh, uh, the board of directors? Uh, I think it's 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 an evolution. Um, when I left Shell and people were approaching me to, to come onto their board, um, I wasn't really screening it per se. It depends on who came to me. If there are somebody I believe I trust and I was already thinking, yeah, I need to see the busy. I just cannot be sitting at home at 60. So I was really not doing screening, to be honest with you. Um, because also, even at that time, the challenges of the boardroom, I didn't quite appreciate it. Because if you look at a company like Shell, it's, 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 an ex, it's an extremely well-organized company that functioning in a board, like board of Shell, is like eating sweet potato. So I never really experienced the real uh, intricacies of, of boardship. So I took those things almost for granted. But in the last five or six years, I have learned a lot. I have also then come to recognize that, oh, this is my second career. Honestly, and that's why some people are asking me, um, are you sure you are not spreading yourself too much? Are you sure you are not doing this? But I have, I have gotten to now understand why I will do it. And what I tell people is that one of the problems Nigerian businesses are facing in terms of attracting foreign investors or even internal investors is poor governance. So getting into this now had opened my eyes about the importance of governance. And so I'm doing it as my own way of giving something back to the society. It's my own little way just to make sure I can embed governance in any organization I find myself in. And whether it is construction or whether it is oil and gas, 
governance is the same. So, but if you now ask me if a company approaches me today to say, oh, come and join our board, of course, there are things I look at almost immediately. I really want to see what their approach to governance is. Is this really a properly governed company? I always prefer companies that are listed. I'm always very careful about private companies because private companies, most of them don't really want governance. Most of them cannot really stand good governance. It's against their practices, it's against you know their modus operandi. So I'm, I'm, if, I, if I see a private company, the chances are I will say no. But if I see a listed company, I think that is the number one criteria for me. If it's a listed company, at least there is no singular owner that is you know, holding the magic wand over, over that, the decision making in that company. So that for me is key. I don't, but once I, I come over that hurdle, um, I'm also not looking for a company that is already being well run, then it's not challenging for me. It's not challenging for me. I like to go into a company yeah, that has reasonable framework in place, but they have challenges. They, they, they have opportunities ahead of them. And I'm always willing to work with other board members to solve the problem and, and, and enhance the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for that. Um, talking about governance, you know, um, which is, you know, a core um, accountability of the board of directors to make sure that there's proper governance uh, and assurance in place for, for companies to uh, to operate. Uh, uh, one of the accountabilities of the of companies' boards uh, of directors is to recruit, supervise, train, uh, evaluate, and compensate the management teams. Um, when recruiting for the C-suite roles, i.e., CEO, uh, CFO, Chief Commercial Officer, you know, Sales Director, things like that, uh, what are the most important traits you look out for? Well, I think for me, the number one thing I am always looking out for is courage. Because in a business venture, if you are in an executive position and you lack courage, you will fail. You will either fail yourself or fail your shareholders fail your other colleagues. So courage for me is very, very important. Um, so I always want to see the extent that any senior officers show courage. The, the second thing I also look out for 
is how big is this guy's ego? If your ego is big, you get a minus from me. Because if your ego is big, the chances are that you will not listen to people underneath you. The chances are that you will be a, a solo player. And that is the most dangerous thing for somebody at the top. So I'm, I'm, I'm always watching out for that. The third thing I watch out for is balance between your thinking ability and your ability to decide. As I've seen that a lot, there are some people who are deep thinkers. They can think from here to their kingdom come, but they cannot deliver nothing. So I, I, I sit at interviews now, I see people, they are giving me analysis upon analysis, but they just lack the ability to turn that thing into a clear deliverable. It's also dangerous if you have a guy who is, before you say Jack, he yeah, started to run without thinking. He just looks at the symptom and is proposing solution just like that. So those two things are really very important to me. Okay, let's let's move to Africa now. Um, uh, many African countries are suboptimal uh, with respect to maximizing uh, the richness of you know human and natural resources available at their disposal. Uh, many African leaders play the blame game, you know, fluently explaining away leadership failure. Someone rightly said, um, Africa's economic malaise is not the result of lack of opportunities but the continent appears to suffer from an affliction of poor leadership. Uh, what qualities do you see lacking amongst leaders today? And how can we overcome such gaps? I don't think Africa, any country in Africa likes the requisite cognitive competence for leadership. And I'm talking collective leadership now. Um, there is enough in terms of technical competence, technical ability, but I think the value system is, is really not, not strong enough. And when your value system is not strong enough, you just follow the wind. So I really do believe that the, 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 the value system needs to be strengthened, needs to be clearly defined. What is the value system we are looking for in our leaders? And because a lot of our leaders just are so parochial in their thinking. They are thinking only about themselves, not about their followers. If your value system is to make sure that uh, you deliver according to the promises, that you have made, their, their actions when they are in government will be different. 
But if you don't have a value system that puts a lot of emphasis on integrity, on uh, making sure that you deliver according to what you promise, then that's where the whole thing starts to fall. If you don't have a value system that that really recognizes uh, collective responsibility, a lot of our leaders don't believe in collective responsibility. They want to be they want to be the prima donna, and that is a problem. That is a problem because nobody has monopoly of knowledge, and African leaders must recognize that that no matter how bright how brilliant you are you will always benefit from the collective wisdom of your colleagues and i don't see enough of that frankly in in africa now what you have described sorry sir what you have described is a fundamental problem so how do you how do you think that you know we can resolve that and move ahead as a continent and you know, experience those things like you just described that the citizens are yearning for. You know, what do you think can be done to address these deep-rooted uh, problems? Well, I think um, we have to introduce a system that makes them much more accountable to the people that they are leading. Because right now, frankly, nobody feels accountable to anybody. So as long as you are not accountable to anybody, then there's no incentive for you to right your wrong. We are not saying people will not be wrong. We are not saying people, leaders will not make mistakes. We are not saying leaders will not fail in certain areas. But stronger accountability is at the core of self-correction. So we need to find a, a system that makes our leaders truly accountable to the people. And I'm not talking about uh, jungle justice now that oh, a lot of our followers do rather prefer. But we just need, and I'm sure there are other countries around the world that have strong tenets of accountability in leadership. I really think that for me is, is, is the starting point. If you have that, and then you, you, you have a proper orientation and that you are able to start to make a good example at certain levels of government, the change will come. But this change we are talking about is not going to be a 24-hour change. It has to be structured and it has to be sustained. Thank you, sir. So you've been you've been a non-executive director for the Nigeria Stock Exchange since 2015. Uh, thought leaders have described the present situation uh, in Nigeria as a twin shock, i.e., referring to the combination of the unprecedented COVID-19 consequences plus the impact of the you know oil price war decline in demand oversupply of oil to the global market and of course the resultant low oil price regime uh, what is your outlook for the nigerian economy 
That's, that's a good question. I really think that um, economic cycles uh, are constant. There will always be different economic cycles for different countries, for different businesses, uh, for different sectors. Um, I think for the Nigerian economy, our own biggest problem is because we are overly dependent on oil. So my, the outlook for Nigeria economy can be bright, but it has the, the caveat is that we have to diversify from oil into other areas. And it's, it can be a bit disappointing because the, 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 the resources we have as a nation from oil, uh, the wealth that oil has generated for us, we have not been able to use it to diversify our economic base. But oil is not lost yet, in my opinion. We have all the ingredients that make a good economy. We have people, we have plenty of, of resources. So we have uh, the, 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 the power of demand. We have the ability to generate the supply. All we need to do is to properly diversify our economy. And so I do believe that if we focus on diversification, our outlook will be a lot better in, in another, say, 15, 20 years. I thought that whenever any economic cycle hits the world, we will have other things that will actually uh, provide us with the necessary shock absorber. Right now, we don't have. We have no hedge at all against anything. And so I really do believe that the potential for us to be a great economy are still there, but we need to harness them. We need to start diversification. It's amazing how our grip is still pretty low. It's amazing how um, uh, other mineral resources, mining, we are still not taking advantage of it in spite of all those rich uh, mining resources that we have at our disposal. So I do, I'm a very hopeful Nigerian, but the only caveat is that we have to be more deliberate at diversifying our economy. We have to be a lot more long-term. I think part of the problem we face with diversification is that everybody wants it to happen in within a four-year tenure. It's not going to happen in a four-year tenure, but if we start to change our mindset to becoming a lot more uh, long-term orientated, then we start to, to march forward in a very, very deliberate and sustainable way. Thank you very much for that. Uh, the generation known as the baby boomers, i.e. those born between 
1944 and 1964 uh, are stepping aside for the generation X those born between 1965 and 1980, and the millennials, those ones born from 1980, 81 to 1996, uh, with a massive, massive acceleration in technology, globalization, and planetary changes. What are some challenges that the next generation of leaders will face, and how do you think they can overcome it? Um, if I, I think the most important thing I feel that the next generation of leaders will face is um, pulling Still pulling themselves together. I still believe that um, the next generation of leaders tend to show a lot more individualistic tendencies. Um, and I do believe that that again could be another, another problem, um, especially in a world where technology is at the center of everything, in a world where you can do a lot more uh, remotely, I do believe that the, you still have to look for a way uh, to make sure that the relevant human elements are factored into the way the next generation will work. Otherwise, it will be, it will get too robotic and um, that in itself will become counterproductive. So I, 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 I'm always, every time I think about the, the pace of technology, the acceleration, I think it's good, but I always feel that, hey, let us not lose the human element. Let us not lose the human, the human touch. Um, efficiency is good, but you also need to make sure that the human touch allows you to be sure that you can be a lot more inclusive. So that's really is my point that inclusiveness may be a big challenge for the next generation because of the, the use of technology, the penetration of technology. Thank you very much for that. Um, my last question is that um, you've obviously been there, you've done that. Uh, your professional and your leadership experience speaks volumes. Uh, what advice will you give to your younger self? Perhaps a 30-year-old Sumono. What will you tell him? The first thing I will be telling him is to is that he needs to learn 
how to say no early enough. Um, I, I think I can be, as a younger man, I, I can be overindulgent. I, I just take it on, you apply pressure on me, I take it. Uh, you ask me to do a thousand and one things and I'm, I'm doing it and it's putting pressure on me. I will have to cite myself over and over again before I can say, no, I don't, I don't want that. Or you do something that I really don't like. I don't, conf I was not confronting people in, in my younger days. And I think all those things tend to put unnecessary pressure on you. Um, if you're also too confrontational, it's not good for you. But I think getting a balance of when you should say no, I think it's, it's very healthy. So that's one advice I will be giving to myself. And I knew that as, as a younger person, it was always one of my resolutions at the beginning of the year that no, I'm just not going to allow this sort of behavior around me to go on for too long. So that is number one. The number two thing is um, to really believe in myself without being overconfident. To be honest, at every stage in my career, you know, even in my education, I always thought, yeah, maybe I'm just lucky. Uh, maybe the people in my class were just not bright enough. So every time I changed from one school to another, I was always afraid that the, the, the balloon is going to burst. So I just never had that confidence in myself that, yes, Mutu, you are good, you are this. I never, and it continued to, maybe it has its own, it has its own benefit because it then made me to over prepare. It made me to, to work a lot harder than I should, but I just don't feel yeah, I, every time I think about it, I felt, no, I missed something there. Because all that energy, I probably have used it for something else. So that's one advice I will, I will, I will give to myself. 